So I'll share a story, but it's not my story, but I can tell it. So this is about um, my late husband. Um, he flew the U-2 spy plane, and as you know from earlier, they fly 70,000-plus feet in the air. Uh, it's a secret mission. Uh, they send imagery. Uh, they take imagery of the ground, send it back to Intel, and it gets uh, re seen, replayed right away. So any imminent danger that they see out there is um, brought back to the command so they can get to work and take action and prevent things from happening to our own troops on the ground. So anyway, um, what I wanted to say was it was a long, hard day on June 22nd. I came home from work, and I thought, I'm just going to sit down and watch TV. My husband's overseas. He's, he's fighting that war, and he's up in the air. He's safe. Nobody can get to him, right? Well, something happened, and I, I don't know, but I felt it in my spirit, and I, I just want, needed to be alone. I felt like I needed to be alone. I didn't want anybody knocking on my door. And I had just moved my business from out in town to home, so I had all these boxes. So <laughs> I piled all these boxes in front of the door <laughs> to cover any light that was going outside so anybody driving by went and see that I was home. And I was sitting in front of the TV watching the news. About a half an hour later, I heard a knock on the door, and I said, nope, not going there. I heard more knocking. Nope, I'm not going to answer it. I'm not expecting anybody. More knocking. Nope, not going to. I can be a stubborn person. <laughs> and I heard more knocking, and it wouldn't stop, and it wouldn't stop. And so finally, I, I went over by the door, and I just yelled, who is it? Nobody said anything. And I'm like, don't make me move my boxes. So... Um, Again, I asked who was out there. They didn't say anything. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess I got to move these boxes. Okay, I'll be there. And I'm, all these boxes are being thrown around the house. So I finally open up the door, and then I see these two men, just like you see on TV. I see these two men, one's in uniform and one's in a chaplain's uniform. And I closed the door right in their face. And they said, can we come in? Nope. Can we come in? Nope. We need to come in. No. Okay. So I let them in. And um, that's when they uh, told me that his plane was lost. They, he went off radar. And so um, I think it was a probably a grueling five or six hours later when we got the final uh, word from the base commander who came out and said that uh, they found his body. Well, a terrible thing happened after that. And you know when somebody passes away and they want to come alongside and comfort the mourner, you don't know what to say. Somebody came up to me and said, the devil snatched him out of God's hands. I was in a place where I didn't know what to believe because my head was just spinning. And so um, months went by, and I just said, God, show me where he is. Just show me. I need to know he's with you. And he did. He gave me a dream. And I saw Dwayne entering heaven in that dream. <laughs> I'm not going to go into details about it. But he was, he served God. He gave his life over to God about a year before he died. 
I'm so thankful for that. And the other thing I'm thankful for is several months later, you know, they do an investigation. And when you're in the military, you, you get this investigation report. And, and, you know, I'm always trying to prepare myself for stuff. And I thought, okay, so if they're going to go and investigate this, I need to know what's going on. I need to understand the terminology. So I learned how to fly planes because <laughs> I wanted to understand that report. <laughs> and in that report, there was also a note towards the end where it said that when he was in the plane, there's bleed over of music. And I thought, I wonder what he was listening to. But before he left, I bought him a Christmas gift, and it was a CD player, and he recorded a whole bunch of CDs to take with him. I don't know what he recorded. I didn't know everything that he recorded. But after the investigation report came, and I read that report, I never knew if I was going to know what song was he listening to and then a couple weeks later someone came to the door and said this is the last of his possessions that they recovered from the plane and it was the cd player <laughs> so i plugged it in and i played it <laughs> what do you think i heard he was listening to the song, God of Wonders. <laughs> I knew where he was, <laughs> and that gave me a lot of peace. But it still didn't lift me out of that pit. So whatever you listen to this morning, just encourage, I want to encourage you again to just Keep your hands on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If it's that little thread on his robe that you have to hang on to, <laughs> hang on to it with all your might and don't let go. <laughs> because these trials are temporary. And just like that song said, who lifted me out of that pit? Jesus lifted me out of that pit. And I can't be more thankful for that. So be encouraged, please. <laughs> Next time. When you go on tour, can I hold your books up for you? <laughs> Thank you, Beth, darling. Thank you, baby. Wow, that's a, that's a big step for her, folks, to talk about things like that that are so tender. Thank you, darling. Wow. Beth didn't grow up with the benefit that I grew up with. I, I won't talk about her family life because I know very little of it, and she doesn't need to go back and tell me a lot of it, but she was not raised in the atmosphere of the Spirit of the Lord I grew up in. We lived in the parsonage, which was under the same roof, the sanctuary the church was in. So we didn't have to go far to church. And if you walk through the wrong door to the bathroom, you end up in the sanctuary. <laughs> really, so you want to make sure your clothes are on. And uh, I always tell people, uh, I grew up in church, almost born in church, and but I went with mom to the hospital where I was born. <laughs> Bad joke. My... That's why I'm not on HBO Comedy Hour, whatever they call it. I'm a pretty poor example. But uh, as you heard this morning, I was born to a woman that never did recover. And over the years of growing up, I grew up under the influence of a godly Mexican woman named Maria Rubio. And my first language was Spanish, and I didn't speak English until I was six years old, and then if you remember this one, that's when they told me I was not a Mexican. 
which blew my Hispanic mind. And I did not want to be told I wasn't what I thought I was. And self-discovery is a terrifying thing if you discover you're not what you thought you were and you're a whole lot in the deficit end of that. You know, um, as a little boy, I didn't understand sin. But as I got older, I figured it out and realized my need for Christ. So at 16, I made a commitment of my life to Christ, and I want every teenager in the house to hear me. It matters. Kid, it matters to make a decision for Christ while you're young. I'm 77 years old. I've never smoked a joint. I've never put Coke up my nose. The only Coke's been in my nose, I was drinking and sneezed. <laughs> Boy, that is a bad trip, let me tell you right now. <laughs> I've never put a needle in my arm. Uh, I was virgin when I got married. I tell that in public schools, it just shocks the socks off of them. I mean, I hear, oh. Of course, the girls appreciate it. The boys salute me in a peculiar way. And I always tell them what America needed was one pregnant teenage boy. And the way we're going today, that'll probably happen soon. But the fact is, I was going to hell with the worst of the worst because it doesn't matter how good a person you are without Jesus, you're not going to make it. And at 16 years old, I, did, I finalized what I started at five years old. I gave my heart to Christ as a little boy. At 16, I figured out how desperately I needed to let Christ be my Lord and Savior because subconsciously, without me even having any clue or prophetic word over me or just no sense of what would desperately come into my life at, in the season of war, I, I just was not prepared except that God knew that there would be a lot of suffering in my life. And I don't say that with any pity, self-pity, please. When I speak of suffering, I'm not saying any of that with poor me. I'd rather go through 10 Vietnams than one divorce. Thank you. Some of you have been through more hell on earth than I've been through. There's, there's more than one place to be hurt and more than one place to be scarred. I'm on the out, My scars are on the outside. Some of you are mutilated on the inside. The hell that you've been through. The stuff that you put up with as a child, some of you women abused and will never speak of it. No one in your family knows, but it's affected your relationships. It's damaged you, and if you didn't have Christ, you wouldn't be sitting in this room tonight. And so I, I, I don't want any pity. God knows. The problem with pity is you pity me, then I start pitying myself, and self-pity is devastating. So I don't want it. So if I speak of suffering, I'm not. you with me, all right? Say amen. All right, and we got that behind us. But I was acquainted with it vicariously because I saw how my mom suffered. And as a little boy, I didn't understand why God didn't heal her. And then as I got older, all the television evangelists said, if you say it this way and you do it that way, then God has to. God's obligated. I found out God didn't have to do anything he didn't want to do. I don't care how many laws we throw back in his face and promises. He's sovereign. Say sovereign. He does what he does because he can. He didn't have to have my permission. He put the moon out, out there without asking me where to put it. It's a good thing, too. I would have really made a mess of things. I just thank God that he's God and I'm not. A few times I wished I was God, and then I realized that some guy messed with me. I'd throw him in hell. Then I'd feel sorry for him, put him in heaven. Then he'd mess up again, throw him back in hell. He'd finally settle on earth not knowing where he was And because I'm, I'm not capable of being God, so I have to trust the God that I grew up to see did not answer all my prayers when I prayed them, but I still believed in him. And when it became my turn to suffer, I wasn't caught off guard because I never saw that woman called mom ever shake her fist in his face and say, why me, God? She never said it. And I recommend you don't. Don't say, why me, God? What if he answered you? Well, I don't know, George. There's just something about you I don't like. <laughs> Poof. Crispy critter. No, see, I figured it out a long time ago that God's sovereign, and whenever he doesn't answer our prayer, when we pray it the way we want it answered, et cetera, et cetera, just settle back and watch God do his God thing. And you'll look back and say, ah, oh, now I get it. He doesn't owe me any explanations, but I owe him every expectation of my heart. If I want him to count on me, then I have to be able to count on him. If I want to count on him, he has to be able to count on me. The Bible says, return unto me, and I will return unto you. The obligation is ours first. So 
when I ended up in the war, I didn't know anything about war. I never had a black eye in my life. Nobody had ever gotten a fight with me. Had a real mean cousin, Johnny Cotton, and uh, he was real mean. He'd already been through juvenile detention, and they sent him to my my dad to help correct him, and I just happened to be the son of my dad, and so the boy that was sent to my dad to be helped became like a brother to me, and he was so mean, nobody messed with me. That boy take his shoe off and beat the snot out of people. He was so mean, and here I am, never had a black eye. I just say, Johnny, sick him. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> I didn't want to be like Johnny. I wanted to be like Jesus because Christ was what saw our family through dark times. Uh, and I saw, I saw my mom, something my dad would sit in the room with her because he couldn't sleep in the same room because the equipment that kept her alive filled the entire bedroom. There's only room, one room for her little bed to lay on and all these green bottles and machines and things pumping that kept her alive. He'd sit in a chair beside her bed. And one day I was passing the door to that bedroom and it was opened a little too far and I could hear and I was nine years old and I passed that door I heard my dad say Lois darling ever since Davy boy that's me ever since Davy boy was born this deadly disease has taken you and I heard him say it you know what little boys think at nine years old they think it's their fault and I thought you know what if I kill myself she'll get better children don't think right they're not they're not expected to. The synapse of the brain haven't connected. They're not mature enough. And until that maturation process takes place, children make bad decisions, but you can't blame them. You know, you don't blame a dog for biting through an electric wire and blowing his teeth out. It's not the dog's fault. He just didn't know better. So I thought about holding my breath till I die. <laughs> that doesn't work. I held my breath till I, I said, okay, I think I'll breathe again. <laughs> but that demon suicide jumped on my back and rode me for years to come. I kept thinking, if I go away, things get better, God, if I go away. And one day the opportunity came for me to go away. And I went away a long way to the absolute polar opposite from, I went to the opposite side of the planet, serving with the Special Forces of the U.S. Navy. And some of the story I told this morning about how that occurred, I don't want to repeat myself on that because I've got more things I want to say to you tonight that I hope I can apply to your soul the hope that came through my learning process out of suffering. We learn more through suffering than we do through the good times any day. You know that, don't you? I mean, God, I, I, I've had people actually say to me, I was speaking at a church in Crockett, Texas. It was a packed house, and in the very back, the back two or three rows had about 60 people in it. I get up, the pastor introduced me in a prayer. Oh, God, thank you for sending Dave Reaver to our church who got hurt in Vietnam. God knew that, but he's going to introduce me in the prayer. And thank you, Lord, that he survived that hand grenade explosion. Jesus, thank you. I think, you know, if you'll just quit praying, I'll tell the rest of the story. I got the mic, and I stood up before I said a word. Those 60 people stood up and started filing out one by one to the back door. And I'm thinking, whoa. <laughs> I showered. I brushed my teeth. I put on cologne. I don't stink. Why are you leaving? That's what I'm thinking. The last guy got to the door and turned around and looked up at me. And he said these exact words. Get the sin out of your life and God will take those scars off your face. <clears throat> words can be devastating. My knees buckled. My leg muscles surrendered their tension, and I started to fall, and I held the podium that held me up. He shut the door behind him on his way out. I didn't know what to say, but I knew what I was thinking. Oh, God, what did I do to you? What did I do to you that you did this to me? But then I realized, wait, wait, wait. I thought Jesus took the punishment for my sin. Why don't we, God punish me for my sin when Jesus took the punishment? We punish ourselves. We eat ourselves to death, drink ourselves to death, smoke ourselves to death. We're killing ourselves every day in a thousand different ways, but God didn't do it to us. Had a woman tell me that God killed her son. I said, he did? She said, yeah. I said, what happened? She said, 
He got killed in a car wreck. I said, was he drunk? She said, yeah. I said, did God take him to the bar that night? No. Did God throw him on the floor, pop a long neck, shove it down his throat, make him drink it till he's drunk? Did God throw him in the car without a seatbelt and slam the pedal to the metal? And did God drive him into the tree? No. Then God didn't kill your son. Quit blaming God for what we do to ourselves. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. I wasn't going to tolerate that time. Then I realized that night, I'm thinking, God, what did I do to you to make you do this to me? And then I realized, wait a minute, Jesus paid it all. And just about the time I got an answer, I could have killed that guy with the love of Jesus before he got out the door. <laughs> so I just took the mic and buried that thought, but it never, ever went away. Never. I don't know if you ever heard of a guy named David Ring. Anybody here know who David Ring is? Let me see your hand. A few of you, he's a great kid. He has multiple sclerosis or, or multiple whatever, deadly. I don't even know if he's still alive. Great guy, great minister of the gospel. He opens his programs with, hi, I'm David Ring. I have MS. What's your problem? I think it's one night somebody said that to him. Get right and God will heal you. I was with uh, Tommy Barnett at First Assembly in Arizona years ago when he was still pastoring there. And a guy came up to the table and told me that if I'd get right with God, God would take the scars off my face. I'd already been prepared because I'd been in ministry long enough to deal with that question. I didn't blame God. I looked at him and I said, is it God that made you so ugly? He walked off scratching his head. You know, I got hurt in the war. What's your problem? You know, you just ugly, dude. Man, you have to sneak up on a glass of water and drink from it. And the guy on the airplane looked at me. What happened to your face? I said to him, what happened to your mother? And it offended him. Well, if there's a, So I told him my story. And he said, well, if there's a God, why was there Hitler? I looked at him and said, if they put tires on, uh, hubcaps on wheels in Mexico, why do they sell dug, e eggs by the dozen in China? He said, what? I said, what? He said, your question is more stupid than mine. <laughs> There's a God, why is there a Hitler? I said, God made everybody, but we have the choice to do what we do. We have a sovereign ability to choose right or wrong, hell or heaven. I said, when you choose wrong, don't blame God. God did not make Hitler do what Hitler did. Hitler chose to do what he did. Opened his heart to the devil himself and became the incarnate devil of our generation. As a child, I grew up hearing about Hitler to this day. God didn't make Hitler do wrong. I'm building my case, folks. Stay with me. Some of you already know from previous visits here, but on July the 26th, 1969, the year of our Lord, because I know some of you think that 69 is as old as I am, is B.C., Sometimes I am funny, but not often. Uh, I came face to face with a death angel. We became very well acquainted that day. He calls me, Dave, I call him ugly. And honestly, folks, that day, I stared that boy in the face. Some of you know what it's like to look death in the face. Some of you have had terrible things happen in your life. I can... I can recall five occasions that I should never have survived. In and out of war. From childhood when I fell out of a car and the car ran over me. The car behind the car that I fell out of, that went, I went under it. The car ran over my little chest as a five-year-old boy. Left big old wide, relatively speaking, it's this wide on an adult body. But on a little body, it was so wide. The tread of the BF Goodrich tire hit me so hard it made blood blisters in the exact form of the tread. Should have broken every bone in my body and killed me instantly because when I fell out of the car and went under the back tire, boom, bounced right over me. Car behind me had to go to the ditch, not behind us to avoid running over me. My dad came running back. Boy, people say, you're five years old. You can't remember that. I remember the differential, the bumper, the trailer hitch. <laughs> yeah, do I ever. Don't tell me I can't remember. I remember sliding on my little butt down that highway and the white line going between my feet. And I'm thinking, good. I, I just got run over. My dad picked me up. The guy got out of his car that was in the ditch trying to avoid running over me. He said, don't touch him, don't touch him, don't touch him. 
My dad picked me up and carried me back, praying in the spirit the whole way. So he almost set me in the middle of the table, my brother and sister on each end, my mom and dad on each side, as I ate my way through a gallon of homemade ice cream. I said, Dad, you can run over me anytime you want to. Just give me the ice cream. <laughs> time after time after time, you know in your life, I know in my life, times we should not have made it. I'm building my case. Stay with me. Please stay with me. See, God has a plan for our lives. So does the devil. All I hear is about God has a plan. God has, and I've said it more times than I'll ever say, Satan has a plan for your life too, but he does. And there's not one of you young people in this room, he doesn't have a lifetime of hell on this earth to give you in his plan for your life. But let me tell you something. He, the devil, never shed one drop of blood for you. He didn't love you enough to die for you. He didn't love you enough to suffer for you. He didn't take stripes on his back for your healing. He hates you, but he'll convince you if he can that he's got the answer. Well, ask the children of Israel in the valley of Hinnom when they sacrificed their children in the fire. Who asked for more from you, the devil or God? The devil will always extract more than God ever asked for. And in the end, God gives back more than the devil could ever even imagine. Don't go down the road. That is the road to the pit. I've been in that pit. The only difference was I found a way out. There's no way out of hell. There's no second chances out of hell. And so that day in Vietnam, when I took the hit, the sniper missed my head and shot the grenade out of my hand, blew it up. Took off 60 pounds of flesh instantly. I weighed 190 pounds that morning, 130 pounds that evening. I was in competition with the Navy SEAL that was my best friend over there at the time. And we wanted to keep our weight at right at 190 pounds and be in absolute perfect physical health. God was preparing my body for the hit of a lifetime. I didn't know at the time. I was just working out in competition with a Navy SEAL, my buddy. I didn't know God was preparing my body for what was coming. I'm going to tell you a story that's going to blow your mind. Don't believe that there's not angelic hosts around us at all times. The day I was injured, it's all recorded on military recording devices, these firefights that take place, the communication, the radio communications. Beth Ann's late husband's, his, his communications were right to the end. The communication was me on the radio calling my combat command center to my, my personal commander. Commander, I don't want to tell you his name. His name was Rambo, Vince Rambo. But it didn't mean anything because Rambo movies hadn't come out yet. Should have been Vince John Wayne. But when I was medevaced out by helicopter on the 23rd of July, three days before I took the big hit, three days before I medevaced because I got shrapnel. We were in a firefight, and shrapnel went into my eyeball. And they didn't want me to lose my eyeball. Well, I didn't want to lose it either. And shrapnel went through my cheek, and I was bleeding on myself that day. But I didn't, and when you have a lot of adrenaline, you don't feel don't feel the pain. And I looked down, I saw all this blood. So I'm looking at everybody. We're checking each other out. I thought it was someone else's blood. I thought I had someone else's blood on. And I'm checking everybody. They said, Reaver, they actually call me preacher man most of the time. There were four of us. One called me Deadly Do-Right. One called me Dr. Doolittle. That's true. It's, it, Dr. Doolittle because I wouldn't sleep with the girls. Deadly Do-Right because I wouldn't do the drugs. And preacher man because I wouldn't shut up talking about Jesus. I call them pervert number one, pervert number two, and pervert number three. That's a true story. It's three perverts and a preacher man. Sounds like a gospel rock and roll band, doesn't it? And uh, that day they said, preacher man, you got all, that's your blood, man. And I, I, I touched my face and blood was everywhere. And my eye was stinging and I couldn't. It's like when you poke your finger in your eye, how it burns. I felt that way. And they, they saw all the blood and they said, man, we, we got to call in to the CC combat control center, CCC, and get you some help. So they flew a helicopter out, and they medevaced me. They wanted me to lose my eye. I got to the base. It wasn't my base. It was an Army post. looked just like a MASH unit. It's, it, it was. They called it MASH in those days. Now it's called CASH. It's different, but different term. Same thing. And they went, they got the extracted, the steel out of, the shot out of my eyeball, and stitched up my cheek, and then they released me. Well, it was a mile or two miles from that army post down to the river 
where our base was on, on the barge. Now listen to the story. First of all, they had a sign out that said, dogs and sailors keep off grass. I guess the sailor they were saying keep off marijuana until the dog get out of the yard. I had no transportation. So I walk up, there's a Jeep there, and the motor was running. I got in that Jeep and I drove it down. It's when I got out I saw the star on the hood. It was a general's Jeep, and the guy that was his driver was relieving himself in a dark shadow when I took the Jeep. Well, I took it to the Marine base because I didn't want the Navy to find out that I drove it down. So I left it at the Marine base, and some Marine, some Marine got himself in really bad trouble. They thought he stole the Jeep. Marines deserve that. <laughs> Simper fly, nothing. Simper fly, buddy. Get out of there. And I did. And I go down to my, my, my Navy base. I'm walking up. Now, there's a gangplank had a little dip in it. Right halfway is a light, and on each end is a light. My commander, Vince Rambo, was at the far end. He was in charge of communications that night. He heard me calling in, we need sea wolves, we need heavy fire air power. They sent helicopters from to give us air power from sea wolves. It's the same as a Cobra today or a Black Hawk today in the Army. I'm walking up, and I'm halfway, and he recognizes me. And my commander said, Reaver. He's the one to call me Reaver. My crew called me Preacher Man. He, Reaver, what are you doing here? I said, sir, uh, I, I took a hit. They medevaced me. I said, uh, they got the shrapnel out of my eye. Shrapnel in your eye? They said when you're a medevac that a hand grenade blew up in your hand and blew your face off and burned the trunk of your body third degree. An exact description of what happened, would happen three days later. Exactly. How in the world, who would say such a thing on a radio to my commanding officer that I had the exact description of what would happen three days later when a hand grenade blew up in my hand, blew off my face, Shredded my body, burned me 50%, almost 50% third degree. And people want to tell me there's no God. You're talking to the wrong Bubba. There is a God. And he knows what our plan, what his plan for our life is. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. You got a plan from God, you got a plan from the devil. You and only you have the authority to choose which plan you're going to go with. Can I give you a recommendation? Fly with Jesus. Fly with Jesus. Three days later, I'm on the bank of a river on fire. And I remembered that God had prepared me. Because that day when he said, I heard the hand grenade blew up in your hand and blew your face off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm thinking, what would I do if that happened? And three days later, it happened exactly the way he described it. No one was describing, though, why the grenade blew. I didn't know that. I didn't know it was my own grenade at first. I thought I was hit by a B-40 anti-tank rocket propelled grenade designed for Army tanks that the enemy used on fiberglass boats. Well, when one of those hit our fiberglass boat, it's only 30 feet long, 11 and a half feet wide with four guys on it, but loaded with more ammunition than you can imagine. We, they called us a fort looking for a fight. And the enemy had, they, I was in boat 51, they had our number, and there was a $50,000 reward if they could kill anybody on our boat. We had a price on our head. And that day, on the 26th of July, 1969, I was in the exact, perfect will of God. I hope you heard what I just said. He didn't do it to me. One of the biggest issues I dealt with for decades afterwards was he didn't do it, but he knew it was coming. He forewarned me it was coming. Why didn't he stop that bullet? from a 7.62 automatic rifle called a Kleshnikov or AK-47. Why didn't he stop that bullet from hitting that grenade? If he could put that moon in space, couldn't he stop another bullet? Everybody in this room agrees, yes, he could have. Why didn't he? And that haunted me. 
I knew he didn't do it. I knew he is not a mean God. He's a good God. I knew he loved me. He didn't hate me. Had all the answers when it happened, where it happened, even why it happened. What I did know is why didn't he stop it from happening. And that haunted me to the point that suicide became my solution. I tried to take my life because I saw no hope. I lost my hope. When I got my hope back, I still didn't have the answer to why he didn't stop that bullet. And that continued to follow me through years of ministry. Wherever I went, I would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thousands come into Christ. I traveled with Billy Graham for nine years, addressed millions of people, and shared board members for 20 years with Dr. Graham. I was active, responsible to God to do what he called me to do. I didn't miss my point, but I didn't understand. Stop that bullet. Why didn't he, why did he let it happen? See, it's one of those questions that you take the blind leap of faith and say, God, I don't know why, but I don't have to know why. I'm still going to serve you. He left me a broken, shattered, emotionally confused man to this day. But he gave me an answer one day as to why. He didn't stop that bullet. Are you ready for this? He answered that question, and he did it quite publicly. My family and I had been on tour. We'd been out 90 days. We came back home. We, that's a long time to be on tour, a 90-day tour all over the world. We came in on a Sunday afternoon. We crashed in our house. Man, I was so glad to be home. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to sit down and be quiet and not have wheels underneath me or airplane wings taking me somewhere. Just go home. And my phone rang. I shouldn't have answered it. It was Jan Crouch. You ever heard of TBN, Trendy Broadcast Network? She and her husband started the largest network in the world, not just Christian network, but the largest network in the world. Trendy Broadcasting had more satellites up and was had more world coverage than any other network on the planet. And at that point in time, they probably had more viewers than anybody else on the planet when Christian TV was at its max. Now everybody's got this and don't need Christian TV like or don't have it, whether we need it or not. It's debatable. And um, <clears throat> she said, Dave, it's Sunday night. Monday is Memorial Day. i got to have you tomorrow night on TBN. I said, Jan, I just got in. I don't want to go anywhere. I'm tired. I'd be a terrible guest. I'd be horrible. I'd go to sleep in the middle of my own sentence. I'd say, I'm tired. She said, i got to have you. Now, listen, it sounds like I'm really important. They just can't have that program. Listen, when they call you that late, the person they really wanted canceled. I'm not stupid. I don't have such an ego that I think I'm that important. But that woman talked me into going. How in the world did she do that? Well, as I got to know her later, I mean, she was quite a talker, an amazing woman, one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. She was like my mom in many ways. She had spiritual direction. Let me show you what happened. I get there, and I said, now, Miss Jen, I'm really tired. Please don't ask any hard questions. Sounds exactly like Hillary Clinton during the primaries. <laughs> Remember that? She told the media, don't ask any hard questions. I know that feeling. I'm just better looking than Hillary. And she said, I'll be nice, Davey. I'll be nice. First question after that big intro, remember that intro? Da -da -da -da. It's time to praise the Lord around the world with Trinity Broadcasting. Our guest tonight is Dave Reaver, blah, 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 blah. First question out of the bag. Davey, do you carry baggage out of that war? Now, wait just a minute. What does she mean, baggage? She's not talking about my tourister or my American suitcase. She's talking about, do you have post-traumatic stress disorder? Do you wake up at night in the middle of the night jerking hair rollers out of your wife's hair, loading machine guns? Do you, do you, do you ever think of killing yourself? That demon that jumped on my back at nine years old wouldn't let go. It's one thing to be oppressed. It's another thing to be possessed. Don't let possession follow oppression. The devil wants to oppress every one of us. He wants to possess every one of us, and he starts out with oppression. Watch how you respond under pressure. Oh, God, I hope you're listening to me. 
The devil oppressed me. He did everything he could to get me to take my life. As I shared this morning, even to the point I pulled the tube in Japan when they got me out of Vietnam, I didn't want anybody to see what had happened to me, so I decided to pull the tube out to kill myself, and I got hungry because I pulled the wrong tube. Very embarrassing. I was at my wit's end that night. Whenever you're tired, you're vulnerable. When you're vulnerable, you talk too much. When you talk too much, you say things you wish you hadn't said, but you can't extract those words out of the atmosphere you spoke them into. Can't get them back. Can't put them back in your mouth. You can't push rewind. You can't get it back. And I told her things I had never told my wife. I told her things I hadn't told anybody. I told her how suicidal I was. I told her about the pulling the tube out, trying to get a little humor into something that I didn't want to be so depressing about. And she hears my discussion of sitting in a bathtub with a gun to my chin, saying, oh, God, how do I wash my brains down when I'm dead? I can't get the brains out of this bathtub. She, my wife, and I take another bath. The woman's got to bathe. Then I started laughing, so I put the gun down and got out of the tub. I'm telling the stories of the times the devil pushed me to the wall, and this was her response. I thought, whoa, holy cow. I just told her the secret of my demise, near demise, and she fixes her hair. And then she said, well, you know why. God let you be scarred and maimed and burned on you. Now, wait just a minute. You know why God let you be scarred, maimed, and burned. She didn't say, you know why God scarred and maimed and burned you. No, no, she didn't say that. She said, you know why he let you be. That was the question I didn't know the answer to. I knew he didn't do it, but I didn't know why he didn't stop it from happening. She touched the sore of my soul with her finger and gouged it. I looked at her, and I was so shocked. Then I got angry. I'm thinking, well, I don't know why God let me be scarred, maimed, and burned, but this blue-haired wonder is going to explain it to me. I never knew what color. It's like a traffic light. You don't know what color it is until you get there. I was so mad at her, I could have pinched her little head off. I said, I, I try to be a gentleman. Listen, sometimes that's hard to do. I said, Miss Jan, I don't know why God let me be scarred, maimed, and burned. She said, well, let me help you. Jesus didn't do that to you, but he didn't stop it because, and the word because became the fulcrum that my life would teeter-totter on that night. Either she gave me an answer that would take the suicide demon off my back or I'd kill myself when I went home. I was at my wit's end. You know why God let you be scarred and burned? No, ma'am, I don't. Because he knew he could trust you. He could trust you with the scars. See, the God that knew I was going to be injured that forewarned me through my commanding officer is the same God that knew I'd speak to 8 million students in public schools who would identify with me because I look on the outside like they feel on the inside. I thought it was condemnation, but for God, it was confirmation. I'm going to trust you with something, Dave. Don't fail me now, buddy. Hang in there. What I thought was a liability, the damage. The, and I look good today, folks. And that sounds like ego compared. I got a nose. I got eyelids. I got lips. They're six years old. I'm so proud of them. As I said this morning, I'm proud of my nose. It's a boy. When I didn't have the nose, I didn't have the lips, I didn't have the eyelids, and my mouth was draining, drooling all the time. People looked at me, children would imitate and pull their mouth down. I tried, tried to take my kids out to Disneyland, and my kids would just cry because other children would make fun of their daddy. I'd go home, and all the neighborhood kids would come to see Matt and Jamie's daddy, Matt, Matt and Kim's daddy, and that's my children. Then I found out they were charging on 25 cents a piece to look at me. <laughs> they always had more money than I did. Oh, he trusted me with something 
that liability became my liberty. That fear of condemnation was my confirmation. He trusted me with something more valuable that I'd never dreamed I could ever let go of. Oh, I wish, I wish I was not so emotional. I can't talk about these things without tears because the goodness of God has been greater than the suffering. Paul said the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory of eternity. I have the glory of eternity to come in the present day, just like you do. We have a taste of eternity already because I am born again of the Spirit, and you are born again. We have eternity already in us. We're seated in the throne with God as Christ is seated in that throne. Do you get it? He doesn't stop off everything happening because he trusts us with sometimes things that are very difficult. So don't go shaking your fists in this. Why me, God? But but but, but I, I trusted you. Now you're blaming me. Nature took its course. I didn't change it. I didn't stop it. And you're going to blame me? If there's a God, why was there a war in Vietnam? Don't give me that junk. There's a God, why did my son get that? Don't give me that stuff. I'm smart enough to figure it out. God does not do evil. The Bible says he doesn't tempt man, neither can he be tempted of man. God does not do evil. Say that with me. God does not do evil. God didn't shoot me that day, but he didn't stop that bullet because he trusted me with scars to reach those millions of kids in public schools who trust me that I know how they feel. I know what rejection is. I know what self-rejection is. They get a pimple, they're ready to commit suicide because it hurts and it makes me look bad in school. Then I come along, I say, hi, I'm Dave. I have scars, you have pimples, we're even. They laugh their head off, they love it because now somebody's going to talk about something they're scared to talk about and bring a little laughter and humor and levity into it. God didn't let me go through this, so I'd sit around feeling sorry for myself, popping tops, sucking suds, shooting drugs, beat my wife, molest my kids. No, that's not why God left me around. So I didn't do those things. That's why I've never smoked the joint. My brother-in-law gave me a beer once. We were in the barn hiding from my sister because we knew that if she caught me drinking that beer, she'd beat me severely around the head and shoulders and take a gun after him. So he gives me a beer out in the barn. I took one mouthful. Oh, I threw up. I was gagging. I said, Herman, there's something dead in this can. He said, you got to develop a taste for it. So I picked up a cow patty. I just shoved it in his mouth just that quick. He's gagging. I said, you got to develop a taste for it. Chased me out of the barn, saying bad things to me. That's the beer I drank. Well, I kind of like, I guess I, I drank a beer, but I didn't swallow. <laughs> Bill Clinton smoked. Marijuana, but he didn't inhale. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I believe that like I believe cows can fly over the moon. So I remained as a child free of all those things and addictions, but I was going to hell without Jesus. And when I gave my heart to Christ, my life would fall into a category called the plan of God for my life. When you give your heart to Christ, everything has purpose then. So no matter what you face, no matter what you go through, and when you don't have Christ, you don't know who to fall back on. You make a lot of mistakes. And it compounds the issue and things get worse. But the day you let Jesus take control. And it's not a one and done, buddy. You got to let him take control every day. Every day. Because there's times I try to take control back. I hope I don't disappoint you and you find out, boy, he's sure a lot more carnal than I thought. <laughs> I'm of the same cloth you are. We're cut from the same cloth, folks. Being a minister of the gospel doesn't make me exempt from any of the temptations and difficulties you face in your life too. We are human, but Jesus came as a man, born of a woman, full man and full God, 100% each. And no one of us can ever say, well, Jesus, thanks for coming, but you really don't know how I feel. The Bible says he's tempted in all manner as we are. You don't have a temptation he's not acquainted with, a suffering you're not that he has not suffered along in pain, physical and emotional. In the garden, in the garden, he had a troubled what? Soul. 
Now is my soul troubled. He didn't say his spirit. His spirit was soaring. His spirit was always with God. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. But his soul was troubled. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? He was to the point he didn't even have, what question do I ask? I've been there. You've been there. When you just speechless, you don't know what to say. And it usually involves death of someone you love very deeply or the words of a doctor saying, you have cancer, you're going to die. Just sucks the breath of life right out of your soul. Now is my soul trouble. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He posed a question. Father, save me from suffering. Take away the suffering. Don't make me go through what I'm going to have to go through. I don't want to go through that cross. I don't want to go through that physical pain. Father, save me from this hour. Then he answered his own questioning soul when his spirit responded, but for this cause came I unto this hour. What was the cause of Christ? Some say, born to die. No, Jesus was not born to die. Death was part of it, but he was born to die, be buried, and be raised again the third day. When he said it's finished, he wasn't talking about the cause. He was talking about the hour. The suffering was over. They wanted to kill him on many occasions, but the Bible says his hour was not yet come. His time to die was not yet. So the hour is measured in minutes. Time is measured in days, weeks, months, years. But it has a beginning, has a duration, and has an ending. That's the hour. The cause has a beginning and a duration and a duration and a duration without an ending. So Jesus endured the cross, the hour, for the joy that was set before him. That's why if you lose your joy, you lose your hope, you're going to take your life. You're going to kill yourself. And there's a thousand ways to it. Only one way this morning, if you recall, only one way to live. That's to get your joy back, get your hope back, get your faith back in Jesus. And remember, he is the source of life, not death. He's the source of light, not darkness. He's the salt of the earth. He is our salt. He makes us taste better, and we last longer because he's a preservative. So all that said, get back to the point. Jesus is our example. And if he can endure to the end, so can we. And the Bible makes it very clear. He did not come to die. He came to live. When he said it's finished, he was not talking about the plan of salvation. He was talking about the end of sacrifice by blood. He was the finished product. And then when he rose again, he was the beginning of the New Testament church. He was the last Old Testament prophet and the beginning of the New Testament priest. Think of that. Isn't that cool? God had a plan for Jesus just like he had a plan for us. Oh, my goodness. I hope I'm not pontificating too much. That's not a nasty word. Because if I had not understood these principles through the suffering that my mom showed me with grace and with courage and with love and no vengeance, no questions, I would have questioned, I would have had vengeance, I would have, had, I would have lost the love, never regained my joy. But because I understood suffering was not meanness from God, God allows things to happen because through suffering we go. Listen to the scripture that God put in my heart about a year ago. So dynamic, it just gives life and makes my whole understanding of Christ so much richer. And I read it, I know I've read it eight times before I realized what I just read. That's the living, breathing document called the Bible that Beth Ann was talking about this morning. When you get the Word of God open before you on bended knee and you study and you listen and you have God speak to you from the living Word of God. Listen to what he showed me in Psalm 119, verse 71. Are you ready? It is good. That I have been afflicted, for I have learned your statutes. Whew. Breathe that one in. It's good that I've been afflicted. Beth Ann told me, I was going to use that recently in a setting that was not a, a spiritual setting. It was at a funeral, and these people didn't know the Lord. And she said, don't use that scripture. So why not? She said, because to them, it sounds like God is a masochist or saddest, rather, and he hurts us, and that's good. No, God doesn't hurt us. It's good I've been afflicted. I'm just not saying God afflicted me. It's good I've been afflicted because I, under the pressure of affliction, have learned the statutes of God. 
Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now, what sin did Jesus commit that God punished him for his sin? None. He was punished for our sin, not his own. And if he was tempted like we're tempted, bruised for our iniquity. Oh, come on, folks. It takes God to be a man. Without God, we can't be what he made us to be. If you remember this morning's message, let me conclude tonight by telling you that grenade was as explosive as the will of God in my life. My life burst into existence through suffering. One of my best friends of my lifetime was a colonel when he was shot down over North Vietnam, Robinson Reisner, retired as a two-star general. He pinned the Purple Heart on me. The two-star general that was the most famous of all the POWs, prisoners of war, in the nickname Hanoi Hilton, the Wallow Prison in Hanoi. He was my friend. I'm going to close with this story because I think it's so apropos. I was released after a year and two months in the hospital. He was released after seven years in prison, four and a half of which were in solitary confinement. When he was released from Hanoi, I was released from the hospital and home care. In 1973, we both ended up in the same place at the same time. He was released from prison. I was released from home care. So I took a trip to the general counsel for the denomination. You're Assemblies of God, right? Yes, you are. I have to remember because I speak in a lot of different denominations. But if this was an Assembly of God event where all the Assembly of God pastors that, and wives and delegates go to. There were about 30,000 people there at, at uh, Miami Beach, Florida, 1973. I'm just out of the hospital. I have one eye, one ear, one nostril, part of one nostril. Everything else is smooth red skin, no hair, no ear, no eye. The eyeball was there. It was covered up with smooth skin. They made it a slit, no muscles left, all blown off. So I didn't have my eye yet. I was horrible. I scared little kids. Oh, they'd look at me and scream, and it didn't help, and i go, rah. <laughs> they just pee all over themselves. <laughs> it's kind of fun. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not really. <laughs> I don't want to make that confession. So we go, and we get there, and, and my wife and I, I said, I'm going to the balcony, the back row of the balcony where nobody can see me. Nobody can make fun of me. I didn't want anybody to see me. It was horrible. Half a face. So we got the back row in the middle of the back row, least lighting, no access to the back row without having to start at the either end, and there's a long ways to get to me. In other words, I was as remote as I could get. But as the program continued, people kept coming in and coming in, and the balcony starts filling. Next thing I know, they're coming down my lane. They're sitting next to my wife and me. We didn't have children yet. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, all oh, these people. I don't want to be around people. I don't want anybody looking at me. And I become extremely, extremely nervous. And I listened to these speakers, and as the greatest ministers of the Sims of God denomination spoke, they started pulling me into a relationship, a fellowship, and I'm starting to feel I have a, I'm here. I'm going to be all right. And I start to get better, as it were. And then at the end, after these great and magnificent men of God preached some of the greatest stuff you ever heard in your life, so we have a special guest that's not on the program. We want him to introduce himself. Would you welcome this gentleman, from stage left across comes a man in full dress, colonel uniform of the United States Air Force, sharp, but he walked on stage. And I looked at Brenda and I said, that man's in pain. She said, how do you know? I said, because he walks like I do. It hurts. He took the podium and he held him, it held him up. He was shaking. My name is Colonel Robinson Reisner. I was seven years in prison of war in the Hanoi Hilton, four and a half in solitary. They beat my head with a lead pipe, and I still have knots on my head. And then they tied my shoulders with a rope and pulled it behind my back and put a stick in the rope, and they twisted and twisted until they burst my chest open. I heard men being tortured screaming, and I would pray, and they would stop screaming. When they stopped screaming, I would pray again, and then I'd pray, and then stop stopped screaming. Then I realized I'm the one screaming, and I'm the one praying. Next thing I know, 
I'm standing at attention in the back row of the balcony. Brenda said, sit down. You're going to make a fool of yourself. So I can't sit down. I'm in the presence of a hero. I can't sit. All I could see was Stephen being stoned to death and Jesus not sitting. He was standing at the throne of God, at the right hand of Almighty God, in honor of somebody who gave his life for somebody he loved more than himself. And I stood for a man that went through all that hell in Hanoi because he loved me and my little wife. And all those 30,000 people, I said, I'm going down to me. She said, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. She said, baby, there's 30,000 people here. You can't get through this crowd. I said, a man with one eye, one ear, and one nostril can get through this crowd. That's exactly what I told her. I stood up and walked down, and as I was going, it was like Moses. The waters parted hither. My people. I got to the platform, and it was higher than me. It was like eight feet up to the top of that platform. And there was no access. The whole front was just all curtains. And on the side was a sea of curtains. But I figured it out. Somebody got up there. They got up there. He got up there. I didn't want to be seen. I wanted to meet the man that loved me enough to go through the hell of the Hanoi Hilton for me. I wanted to thank him. I worked my way through the sea of black curtains. And sure enough, I come up on these stairs to go up to the stage from the back. And there was a felt purple rope with golden hooks on either end suspended on golden stands and a sign that said none shall pass actually it said do not enter but it's more dramatic to say none shall pass and I'm thinking take the end off one shall pass and I unhooked the rope and I dropped it and I walked up those steps to one of the most amazing, life-changing moments of my entire existence on this planet. It started with two men jumping out in front of me that had badges on that said staff. I tapped one of them on the badge. I said, I'm so sorry about your infection. <laughs> he laughed and high-fived his buddy, and when they weren't watching in that split second, I shot right past them. The next curtains I opened were thick red curtains, and I parted the curtain, stepped out in front of 30,000 people, I listened to the guys that so moved me as they said, ooh, what happened to him? Or, ooh, that's horrible. Or, ooh, and I had all the oohs and ahs I could take that day in the land of Oz. They all stepped back and stared, but one man did not step back. He stepped up, and he reached out and took my hand. Robinson Reisner would seal our friendship that day with a handshake that I shook off when he said, Vietnam, I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm sorry. I shook his hand for you. I said, I didn't come here to get your pity, Colonel. I came here to thank you for what you did for me. And he reached back and he took my hand again and he stroked it with such gentleness. He said, young man, listen to the words uttered by this amazing national treasure. And he said to me that day, Young man, when you suffered for America, don't you love her so much more? I said, yes, sir. I do love her so much more. We became friends that day till the day he died. He became my personal advisor. We sat with our feet on his desk. When he said to me, he got his first star promotion from colonel to one star. And he took command of Cannon Air Force Base in Clovis, New Mexico. And he were, we were sitting in his office, no books, nothing, just two chairs and a desk. He said, have you ever put your feet up on a, a general's desk? I said, no. He said, neither have I. So he popped his feet up on his desk because now he's a general. And I popped my feet up there and we spent the entire day through the night talking about what I'm going to close with when he said to my question, sir, was that experience in Vietnam not the worst days of your life? He answered me, they
they were the best days of my life because that's when I learned to trust in Jesus. Next time you're suffering, next time you're hurting, before you go shooting off your mouth about how bad God is, you might want to consider how much he put into you in trust that you would not let him down when the heat was on. If you remember the message this morning, the world's not happy with cardboard Christians. We need to be the real deal. Amen. Amen. So I left the hospital after 13, 14 months and 13 surgeries, 62 surgeries ago. And with every time I've suffered or been hurt physically, I, don't, I try not to get hurt spiritually. I try to keep my spirit man happy all the time. I don't succeed, but I try. I can look back and I can say, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, how I trust him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, give me grace to trust you more.